Welcome to Europarama, a podcast series about science fiction and the future of Europe. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Are We Europe, the podcasting family and magazine which collectively asks the question what it means to be European. My name is Giuseppe Porcaro and I'm the author of Discos Hour, a novel about Europe and democracy in the age of algorithms. In each episode, I talk to a fellow writer and together we explore and create a fictional future scenario for the old continent. I use science fiction to explore multiple narratives for the future and storytelling as a tool to create spaces for a European imagination. But fiction is not prediction. So this is not a podcast by futurologists. This is a podcast by creative writers who are using science fiction to imagine different kinds of futures. Today, I'm happy to host Malka Alder, who is joining remotely from the East Coast of the United States. Hi, Malka. How are you? I'm fine, Giuseppe. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Thanks for joining. Malka is a writer humanitarian worker and holds a PhD at the Center, uh, the Centre de Sociologie des Organisations at Sciences Po in Paris, studying governance and disasters. Named Senior Fellow for Technology and Risk at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs for 2015, she has more than eight years of experience or nine years, I mean by now I think that more than eight I suppose, um, <laughs> in humanitarian aid and development and has responded to complex emergencies and natural disasters in Uganda, Darfur, Indonesia, Japan, and Mali. Her first novel, Infomocracy, has been published by Tor.com in 2016, starting the so far trilogy of the Sentinel Cycle, which comprises also Null States and her latest, State Tectonics. She is one of the nominees for the prestigious Hugo Award for 2019, and she recently published for the New York Times in their series Opets from the Future. I share with Malka the interest about where politics and democracy are heading into the future, specifically as a consequence of technological changes. It is a theme that has run throughout the history of science fiction. Something that already in 1921, Eugenie Zamiantin tried to imagine in his novel We, for example, and later developed in different directions by Orwell, Huxley and the likes. I would like to read actually a quote from We to recall the tone and the imagery of these reflections about the future of democracy back in the past. A sort of archaeology of the future. It goes without saying that this does not resemble the disordered, disorganized elections of the ancients, when, it seems funny to say it, the result of an election was not known beforehand. Building a government on totally unaccounted for happenstance blindly, what could be more senseless? And yet, still, it turns out, it took centuries to understand. Malka, your reflection on the topic of democracy is condensed in the Centennial Cycle, which is um, 
this series of cyberpunk techno thrillers that, as we say, begin with begin with uh, infomocracy. Your premise is set in a not so distant future and portrays a world governed by micro democracies. So, uh, to explain to our listeners, countries have been replaced by districts, so-called sentinels, of 100,000 people each, if I'm correct, and the entire world turns out to vote once a decade for their local government, and the political party elected to the most sentinels becomes the supermajority, setting policy and direction for the world at large. Needless to say, the stakes are high as a new election approaches. I would like to start our space-time exploration of today with your premise. When it comes to Europe, the system of the sentinels you describe globally uh, is the same. But the interesting thing is looking at how it played out there. How would you describe the Europe under infomocracy? That's a great question. And let me just start out also by saying that looking at looking at the Europe of today had a huge influence on me in developing this, this idea, this premise for the future. Um, looking at Europe, also looking at ASEAN, looking at Mercosur, looking at the federalism in the United States. I really, but Europe I think is the place where right now we can see in action, uh, I think in the most sort of dynamic and fundamental way, this key tension as we're continuing to develop governance and nation states and democracy between what is better on a large scale, what is better uniform and standardized across as many uh, jurisdictions as possible, and what is better to be autonomous and self-divided and very customized and very granular. And, you know, we're seeing that happen in Europe as Europe comes together and there's still separatist movements within countries in Europe. Um, as uh, Europe decides certain things um, on the European scale, while other things are kept very much on the, the, the national scale or even the local scale. And so watching that process, um, you know, as someone who had lived in Europe in various times and, and traveled around Europe at various times, was, was a, a major influence in how I came up with the system in my book. So to, to go on and answer your actual question. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as you say, it's the system is mostly global. There are a couple of holdouts uh, that I talk about, particularly in the second and third book, that do not enter the system of microdemocracy. So it's not a fully global system. But for the most part, the whole idea is that democracy has become very local. And so every place, whether it's Europe or Africa or the United States, uh, which no longer exists, but the former United States, um, every place is going to be this scattering of different governments uh, alongside each other, um, sometimes working together, sometimes ignoring each other. Um, and so, so to, in a sense, you know, it's kind of similar globally, but of course, as you say, things play out very differently in different places. And for me, one of the most fun things about writing the book was imagining how this different system would turn out differently in the different places that I knew well from, from living or, or traveling there. Uh, so there's something like 17 locations in the first book. Uh, and, and it was really just fun to play out the idea of how this would look. What I imagine for Europe is, you know, something of what we see now, a combination, there's a government in the book that's called European Union. 
which yeah. is I, I, I saw that I, I was about to ask you this uh, later exactly how what kind of European Union this would have been sure so this is not the same as the European Union as it exists now it doesn't cover all of Europe and it does have hold sentinels outside of what we think of as territorial Europe um, but it's it's a government that claims or attempts to espouse some of the values of the European Union as a political entity. Um, so it's, you know, I think fairly technocratic. It's uh, got the idea that, you know, sort of having lots of people from different areas come together is a good thing. Uh, it's about things like standards. And again, you know, still having a certain amount of variation available to each individual sentinel because uh, this, this government, even though let's say, you know, this government holds some sentinels in what is now Europe and some in South America and some in Asia, they will have certain standards that go across all of them, but they'll also have a certain amount of individuality. You know, they'll have governors for the, the individual sentinels in each place where they have some flexibility for how they govern themselves. Uh, so that's, that's one government. There's also still, uh, and the book, as you noted, it's, it's kind of, it's near future. It's, it's about, I usually say about 60 to 70 years in the future. <clears throat> and so there are still, and we see this uh, in the book, that this is one of the major issues that still threatens the system, but there are still a lot of people who think in terms of the old nation-state identities. So, you know, there there are governments that tie themselves. There's a government called Forza Italia, for example. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there are governments that still that still really tie themselves to, to the old um, identities of you know this is who we are this these are, and again these are governments that may have uh, Forza Italia comes up initially because they have a sentinel in Buenos Aires uh, which has a lot of historical ties to right. Italian people who, who may want to belong to that kind of ideal so it's not so much about it's it's a little bit about being Italian in sort of a genetic ethnic cultural sense. It's also about, you know, it, it has become a political party. And so it, it, they have to espouse certain kind of policies and ideas, probably in the, in the case of Forza Italia, you know, following the Forza Italia political party. You know, we imagine that this is going to be a very sort of nationalist, somewhat strident um, government. Uh, you, you, if I'm not uh, wrong, you even have a, a, a sentinel or like a party or a government that is called USA, USA which is in, mainly in Europe and is like not, I mean, like uh, kind of m m mocking, mimicking or mocking the, the values of the United States or something like that. Yes, exactly. And no one's really quite clear whether it's mocking or mimicking. But you know, I think as someone, again, you know, having traveled around a lot of the world, you know, you find people in Europe who are very much pro some idea of the USA. And it's not exactly what the United States is. But then again, within the United States, you have plenty of ideas about it that are not exactly what the United States is. Um, but, you know, it's a government that has managed to capitalize on this kind of identity or aspiration that people feel. And so, you know, really what I'm trying to get at here is uh, these, the way that identity is shifting for people, identity and allegiance. And different people are finding different scales of identity that appeal to them and different types of aspiration or allegiance or you know, ideas about what government should be. 
that appeal to them and that they end up voting for and, and eventually, you know, forming a government around. Your concept of Sentinel is very much linked so to somehow, as you say, like almost identity politics or like almost uh, uh, it focuses on population rather than territory, if I'm if I'm correct. Right. Yes, that's um, so my question is actually, what is the relation between population and territory and what is the relation between the political power and, and, and territory as those are like quite, quite elements that are um, at the basis of the old concept of the, West, the Westphalian concert, concept of, uh, of nation state, how the concept of territory is played out within, within your system and how, on the other hand, this identity uh, politics is played out by the um, the um, the people uh, in choosing their government or choosing the sentinel where they want to uh, belong to um, you know like uh, do they need to move to a certain place where this government is actually uh, ruling a certain territory or is it something that is totally disconnected from territory how how do you elaborate on this Okay, so this is a big topic. Let me start by saying, first of all, that although we've talked so far mostly about governments that are tied to kind of uh, territory, older territorial uh, identities, there are, all are, there are also quite a lot of governments in the book that are more related to issues. For example, you know, there's a couple of governments that are really based around uh, the environment. There's a couple of governments that are really based around economics. There's one of the main governments in the book is called Policy First, and they're based around the idea that we should be talking about policy rather than either the personalities of individual leaders or nationality or ethnicity or religion or language or any of these things. There's also quite a lot of governments that are based on corporate identities. So most of them are uh, conglomerates of several large corporations that kind of banded together and decided to use their skills in marketing to become democratic contenders. Um, so there's, there's, there are some, some differences, but there are still a lot of governments that, that do focus on these old identities that are more or less tied to territory. And this question of territory versus population was actually, again, you know, one of the fundamental things that I was really thinking about a lot as I came up with this premise. Um, I was both working and traveling in a lot of places that had secession conflicts of various levels. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, I worked as a humanitarian worker and development worker. I was in Sri Lanka, I was in Sudan, I was in Indonesia. But also, um, you know, I was traveling quite a lot for, for conferences or for tourism or for whatever. And so, you know, I was in Scotland and I was in Barcelona and I was in all these different parts of, of Europe. And I was also, you know, continued to be a citizen of the United States where perennially, we talk about Texas seceding or California seceding. And so far it hasn't gotten particularly serious, but that, that idea of people wanting to separate from their nation state is always there. Uh, and, you know, it's pretty much something that exists in almost every nation state in the world. There is some level of separatist movement, um, whether it's serious or not, whether it's violent or not. And so I was really thinking about, particularly having worked in a lot of places where it was quite violent, um, how really you know, how how useless these wars are and how the, you know the idea that a state will fight and spend incredible amounts of treasure and lives to keep people who don't want to be in the state there 
you know, making governance continually difficult. Um, and, and the, you know, it's, it's just so it's, it's really counterproductive and, and stupid. And I understand why it happens, you know, and I understand there's space involved and I understand, uh, there's all sorts of, of, of emotional reasons, but you know, one of the reasons that comes up is people don't, is that these states don't want to lose territory, but we are in such, you know, we, ha I think the idea that territory is valuable to states is, is actually extremely antiquated. Our economy today, for the most part, does not run on territory. It sometimes runs on things that are found in territory, you know, extractive industries. But even if you look at some of the most successful uh, countries or, or principalities sometimes in the world, you know, quite a few of them do not have either a lot of territory or extractive industries, and they've built their economies on other things. So Japan, uh, Singapore, you know, if you look at Dubai, which does not have the, the degree of oil that Abu Dhabi does, they, you know, it's, and then you look at countries that are enormous and have lots of uh, resources, and they're really not doing very well. So the idea that a large state is, is a goal is something that I think is, is, is vestigial. It comes from older ideas. And what we are seeing now to be increasingly valuable in the world economy is population. You wanted to say something. Yeah, no, I wanted to say something because I wanted to, to build up on what, what you just said and, and introducing or, or chipping in with, with, with asking you uh, what you think about world building that I'm currently working on, which is quite something new that I haven't really uh, uh, released anywhere yet. And I'm working on, 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 a, on an hypothesis, uh, kind of similar to what we're saying, that basically uh, world economy, uh, first of all, the world economy could be at some point be split. You know, this idea that globalization could be fragmented at some point. I'm, I was very much intrigued by this idea because of what is going on now with the crisis of multilateralism and, and, you know, Trump with tariffs, the trade wars with China, Huawei, and, and you know, you name it. And I was, like, trying to, to, to think how, uh, how such a fragmented world could, could actually be possible when it's not, it's not really realistic to repropose something like a Cold War scenario where you have two blocks that are territorially bound, you know. So I was developing uh, this concept uh, of of word rhizomes, building on the concept of rhizome. I don't know if you if you are uh, familiar with that concept from Deleuze and and Guattari, which actually I I own to another conversation I had in in Europarama with uh, Sabrina Calvo, another author, and and basically the idea is that uh, um, uh, the the word, word economy could be split in several rhizomes which are somehow mm, within the rhizome, they are multiple, they are not really uh, territorially bound with each other and so on, but they are connected. And, and therefore I was thinking this new world where you would have within a world rhizome, almost like the reproduction of a global economy in itself, but you would have several of those world economies um, in, in, in the same planet or actually outer space if you count, you know, space stations and, and colonies and so on. So uh, within this frame, um, you basically would have people and territory which would be a functional, not like uh, um, an ontological part of, of, uh, of the rhizomes. And people would subscribe to a rhizome, uh, either fully or, or partially. 
So you could have also like a, a full subscription to the European Union, but partial subscription to, let's say, Netflix that would become a rhizome itself, you know. Um, so, so I was playing a little bit with this idea and, and my main issue, my main problem was like, is it possible that actually one person could subscribe to different rhizomes, first of all? And then, the, and secondly, what would happen at territorial level? So I was looking at Europe as well, and I also had this idea that European Union could be developed into something that is uh, a rhizome, so not necessarily bound to Europe as a territory, but uh, globally. But, but basically, um, there's this tension between the individual and, um, and the rhizomes and the subscriptions and the territory. So I was wondering, uh, according to your your ideas, if you would see, first of all, such a world kind of possible that we could have different economies which are global at the same time but self-contained. And secondly, those economies would share uh, people and territory at the same time. I, I think it's completely possible. I think we have barely scratched the surface of what we are able to do in terms of some of these uh, for, for lack of a better word, some of these social technologies that we are developing, like economics and governance. And we like to think that we're, you know, that our time is at the, the absolute apotheosis of these. And, you know, we have the best governance ever. And we, you know, we, we get economics and we're doing it. And, you know, really, we're at the very beginning of both of these sciences. And there's a long way to go. And, you know, uh, I mean, who would have imagined even 15, 20 years ago, other than maybe William Gibson, the, the level of internet connectivity that we have today that allows people to have these, these connections that are very much outside of their territory. And that, again, is just at the very beginning of what we are going to be able to do with this. I mean, this, not to say that this is predetermined that it will happen, because there are a lot of things standing in the way of innovation of economics and governance. But if we choose to, I think that there's a lot of potential for doing things that are very different. Um, I, I want to go back a little bit to, to, to continue answering your question earlier because, because I didn't quite finish and also because it's, it's relevant to what you just asked me. The, the system that I describe in my book is sort of an intermediate between what you're talking about and where we are now. Hmm. So in the system in the book, I am looking at starting to separate democracy from territoriality. But as you notice, it hasn't completely separated. There is still this this idea of a, a district, a physical district with 100,000 people in it. And again, you know, it's not territory, it's people, so it might be a couple of really dense city blocks or it could be miles and miles of rural area. But either way, it does have something to do with proximity, to physical proximity to, to your, your co-voters, um, your co-constituents. And, you know, there's a sense in the book, and I certainly was, was thinking that you know, they want to move beyond this. There's a point in the book where someone says, I hear next time they're going to try to get it down to 10,000. And the campaign workers who have been like desperately trying to figure out wow. how <laughs> and go to every sentinel that they have a chance of winning are just like, Ugh, right? But, you know, there's this idea that they're trying to figure out how to, to, to make it both more granular and more separate from territory so that the way that you are governed and the way you choose to live is less and less determined by the place that you're in. However... What does happen in the system that I've designed, because it's based on population and not on territory, uh, although uh, immigration policy is not determined at any kind of um, 
global level. Each government can can make its own immigration policy. There's an incentive for relatively open immigration because these governments want more people coming in. Because if you have a couple of dense city blocks that are one sentinel and you manage to get, you know, <clears throat> 50,000 people to move in because your government is so great, then you suddenly have two sentinels mm. that in the same territory. You don't have to expand by trying to conquer someone else's territory. You can just convince more people to move into yours and you suddenly own more sentinels. You have one more tick mark in this sort of global competition for, for how many sentinels you have. So the, the political parties, which, mm -hmm. uh, which substitute somehow the concept of state, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, yeah. they have all incentive to get more people because they get more voters. And, and, therefore, and therefore, migration is somehow, uh, um, somehow encouraged. So most of them. Some of mm. them are, they're either nationalists, they're segregationists, uh, right. they have other issues, there's, a, there's some s sort of security-based ones, and, and they can say no. But for most of them, if they're playing by this game, and I, I don't, in the books, I don't refer to them as political parties, I refer to them as governments, because they do govern. But they act very much like political parties because they do compete for people. Um, and they compete for places. And, you know, I, I think that governments and, and nation states as they exist now should be competing for immigrants instead of the other way around, because most of the studies that we have show that immigration is good for countries. And, you know, rather than sort of sticking with this idea of there's a certain type or number or, you know, history of people who belong here, Having more fluidity is generally a good thing in both economies and, and governments, but that's getting into today a bit too much. <laughs> so to talk about mine, you do, you know, you do have to move um, physically to get into a different government if you don't, uh, if the government that you support doesn't win where you are. It's exactly. This is a little bit the, the difference between the system I was that kind of describing and your system is that there is still this importance of the physicality. You know, like yes. you, you can't just subscribe to a government and continue to live there, but you need to go and move to where the government is actually having some sort of jurisdiction. Yes. And it's, and it's, um, you know, as I said, it's sort of considered a step, like they're, they're trying to work towards something that's that's less physical but it's still it still is they haven't still, quite figured out yes yeah, okay yeah yeah and, got and it you know there's still there's still a cost to moving even though immigration is often quite free uh depending on how far you have to move obviously you know there are costs to that for people um so you know that i mean i think that that is one of the parts of the the situation that is still evolving so let's imagine for example to go a little bit for for our listeners because uh, we are getting very geeky and and yes. and very very theoretical and then you know i i can totally understand and and picture what what we are discussing about just just uh, um it could be good to make it a little bit more more concrete and and um and uh, uh, real for for uh, for our listeners. Uh, so uh, let's imagine for a second that that we need to describe how life would be in, in a specific European capital. It can be Berlin or it can be Paris. I mean, pick pick up uh, one one city or one territory, or it can be like rural France. I mean, whatever. But just just trying to understand how I mean how actually life would be, or like what what would be the the consequence of of this um, 
sort of a new new system for for the daily life of a european so i i um paris is probably the european capital that i know best at this point because i was living there for for a couple of years to do my doctorate uh and there's actually a section in in the first book in which one of the characters takes this long walk because she's dealing with a lot of stuff going on. And she takes this long walk through Paris and describes as she passes from sentinel to sentinel uh, how things change. You know, so she she's in one sentinel and the, the school kids are smoking and throwing their cigarette butts on the ground. And then as she crosses the invisible line, which uh, everyone has a fair amount of augmented reality tech in this future world. So the line is invisible, but she knows where it is because it's clearly marked in, in the, the augmented reality. Suddenly there are no cigarette butts anywhere because smoking is illegal in the next sentence. Um, and, you know, and there's, there's sort of different rules about the pop-up ads that come up into this augmented reality that everybody has. And there's, there's different rules about, um, you know, everything that's going on. So to describe living in a European capital means this kind of variety, which, you know, again, is not entirely new. I mean, if we think about Paris, which has the arrondissement, which, you know, typically don't have different laws, but they do have different characters that they're sort of proud of. And they do elect different um, uh, mayors for the, for the arrondissement. And they, they put in place some different softer policies, you know, not, not completely different laws from the rest of the city, but they do have policies for different things that they want to encourage. And they do try to encourage their own character. And so you do feel it. You might not notice if you don't know the city well when you pass from one to the other, but you will eventually say this, this area feels different. Um, and uh, so to, to really dis describe for, for someone's, you know, the idea is very much that someone's life, what someone's daily life looks like will depend less on which European capital they're in than which government sentinel they live in within that capital. Um, assuming, of course, always that they will in their daily life probably pass into other governments. But the things that make up, you know, their their housing, their school, their work, the different policies that they will interact with on a regular basis will have a lot to do with which government they pick. Right, right, right. So a patchwork, basically. Mm -hmm. A patchwork and, and with a lot of, of variety to choose so that, you know, if you are someone who believes, I don't know, that... Um, you want uh, a place where there's a strong social safety net and um, you want everybody to have a, a guaranteed job of some kind and, and uh, you know, XYZ policies, you can live in one place and that's, you know, what you're going to have within the reason of, you know, the difference between what government's promise and attempt and what they achieve. Right. Not everything's going to be perfect, but uh, perfect according to your your ideals. And then if you're someone who, who wants a much more austere government where, you know, people each are doing their own thing and you have less assistance from the government, but also pay less in taxes and, you know, you're going to live in a different sentinel and things are going to look very different. Um, on these, I mean, let's, let's think, for example, I, I'm the inhabitant of a sentinel. I, um, I vote for for a certain a certain party to govern this sentinel. This party loses, and I want to migrate to a sentinel where the same party actually won and is governing. Uh, is the movement between one sentinel and the other 
allowed uh, in between elections or after the elections? Or is it something that you need to abide? Like once that you're registered as a voter in this Sentinel, at least for that legislation that you voted for, you are obliged to live in that Sentinel. I'm just thinking, you know, like it would be to... Um, um, as I said, immigration policy is it's divided on the, the individual government level, but most of them, uh, you know, they like to have immigration available so that people can come in throughout the the elections, the, the full cycle, you know, the 10 years. And um, there's actually in the book, I mentioned that there tends to be a period of very high immigration, very high migration, let's say, right mm. after each election that's called mm. mandergerrying, because it's kind of the opposite of gerrymandering, where, you know, a lot of people move around to find a place that they feel comfortable in this new political map. Right, right, um, right. There is one other thing I wanted to mention, too, about what it's like to live in these places, because there is a major downside to this kind of fragmentation, particularly, well, I was going to say particularly in cities, but also in rural areas. Um, and that is that it's much harder to accomplish the sort of economies of scale that we tend to take for granted in cities. So things like sewage and electricity and water delivery can be very problematic. And in the, the feature that I described, most cities have dealt with this at least to a certain extent. Um, by forming coalitions, most of the, the the large governments that have a lot of sentinels, you know, that are likely to have sentinels in any major capital, have have these kind of standard MOUs so that that they can share with each other. But some things, you know, have been really affected. Um, uh, one of them is long haul travel, so trains become um, much much more problematic. And so a lot of the travel, especially initially, shifts to air travel and sea travel. Um, and they, they, there's these kind of flying cars, so that there's sort of local air travel as well. But, you know, one of the things that uh, comes up in the third book is that one of the, the characters gets on a, a long-haul train and says, you know, that there's been this progress in being able to, to figure out how to do trains again. And it's this feeling of being sort of both nostalgic and futuristic because it's like old but new. Um, so there are these there are these problems. Um, I talk about a lot of places where the sort of subway system has fallen apart, or you know, there's subway systems, but because it's a coalition and not every government in the city has joined the coalition, there are these stops where it just doesn't stop because they're not paying into the the subway system according to the rules the coalition has come up with. You know, that there's there's certain parts of of different cities where uh, they don't go by the electricity, the grid electricity that everyone else uses. They have to provide their own, and it's very weak. So there are there are these problems with some of the things. And again, you know, this this comes back to the sort of questions that I find very fascinating about what do we need to do together? You know, what is it best to do in large groups or extremely large groups or size groups? And what do we really want to be able to decide? individually or in very small interest groups. So somehow this brings uh, back to the question where we started about uh, the um, thing at the European Union as an interesting experiment, like real life experiment about what to do and what kind of competences uh, should be transferred uh, at a higher at a higher level, what kind of competences should be at local level. Uh, this is somehow the essence of the principle of subsidiarity, which is uh, like uh, one of the ruling principle of the European Union nowadays. So s somehow uh, I can see a sort of thread about uh, this kind of reflection or theme about uh, on the on the human organization in general and political organization in general 
like how can we start to think in a multiscalar way instead of in the old-fashioned state-centric Uh, um, you know, uh, scale which which is posits that basically the only the the only unit for government uh, should be uh, the, the the nation state as it was developed in the 19th century or or earlier. Yes, exactly. And you know what I'm really trying to do with my books um, is you know more than say this is a prediction. <laughs> it's not and more than say this is what i hope will happen because it's not although i think it it has some positive elements i'm really just trying to say let's look at what we're doing now and let's look at our assumptions let's look at the things that we're just the ways that we're not uh thinking outside of this antiquated um and really problematic idea of nation states i think that uh this is a really fascinating this whole thing and i uh, really uh invite uh, our listeners to actually read the the trilogy uh and um more than that i mean uh, i think this is a discussion that is running a little bit through as a theme in this whole discussion about nation state and and of course the the political experimentations that that can be in the future and um as you say we 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 share this kind of uh, idea that uh, it, it's more about thinking of how we are doing things and how we can do things differently but not necessarily prescribing or predicting what we are going to do in the future and on this note i would like to to say thank you again for joining uh, this episode of uh, aeroparama and uh, thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in you can check out more episodes and the other shows of the are we europe podcasting family as well more detailed information and links in the show notes looking forward for the next episode until next time bye bye